Early in its history, the church began establishing practices for baptism. It was clearly commanded by Jesus in the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And, well, and so they did. For example, the, the Didache, a, a very early anonymous document, uh, gave instructions for the practice. It, it said, and concerning baptism, baptize this way, having first said all these things, a baptismal catechism thing, baptize into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in living, that is in running water. But if you do have not living water, if you don't have a stream running through your auditorium, baptize into other water, and if you cannot in cold, in warm. I find that interesting. We just spent a lot of money for on-demand hot water to fill the baptistry, and now I find we didn't have to. <laughs> but if you have not either, pour out water thrice upon the head in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you don't have enough water, it's okay, I guess, to pour. That, that, that document was written as early as 60 to 80 AD before some of the New Testament was even completed. Now, while it's not inspired Scripture, it certainly gives a glimpse into some practices of the early church. And, and so, we find there was an uh, accepted early practice of baptism, which generally agrees with the biblical record. It, it was the practice in the early church to, to baptize new believers in Jesus. Now, I want you to catch that. Incidentally, there is no early record of baptizing babies that didn't come till about 100 years later at the end of the second century. In the New Testament, it was always without exception, without a single exception, believers who were baptized. We find this throughout the New Testament when people became Christians, they were baptized. Usually also, interesting, immediately. This too was an early practice. Get saved, be baptized right away as an expression of your belief in the death, burial, and resurrection of, of Jesus, your identification with Him, and your new life in Christ. For example, on the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached what has been called the first message of the Christian church, he told them to repent and, and be baptized. And, and 3,000 of them were that very same day and, and added to the church. Now, today, we, we've made baptism, well, we've made it a bit optional. That is, I'll repent and trust Jesus for the forgiveness of sin, confess Him as, uh, as the Lord of my life, and I, I might even get baptized one day if I ever get around to it. And so, for many, baptism comes long after salvation, if at all. In fact, I often tell people as I talk with them about baptism, I'm going to hold you under the water one minute for every year you've been saved. <laughs> You're laughing nervously. <laughs> for some of you, that would be a challenge. This is all I'm going to say about that. Baptism was and is an accepted act of obedience upon becoming a follower of Jesus. From the earliest days of the, from the, earliest days of the church until now. If you have not been baptized as, a, as an expression of your, of your faith, I encourage you to do so. Further, <laughs> I would remind you that Jesus commanded it. Our next baptism is scheduled in the next few weeks. 
contact the church office or talk to me. We'd love to talk with you about it. Follow Jesus' example, even his command to be baptized. Well, it was also fairly early in, in church history. The practice of baptism was well, it was actually separated from the conversion experience. And I suppose with good reason, this is how it went. If you became a Christian, you would become a catechumen. Okay, it's not a catechumen. That sounds like a spice. A catechumen, you would, you would enter classes to be discipled, catechized in your new faith and given the opportunity to prove the genuineness of your faith. And if you were successful in all that, you would then be baptized. The church would then have a special baptism service on Easter Sunday. That's cool. Think, think about the, the rich symbolism of that. Well, not necessarily biblical. It was full of meaning as people would be baptized on the day the church remembered the resurrection of Jesus. As Jesus was crucified again, buried and, and raised again, so also would his followers die to themselves, be buried and raised to new life in Christ. Again, it was, a, it was a cool practice. In fact, they, they would also do this. They would, well, well they would remove their, their outer clothing and enter the baptismal waters almost naked. I mean, some actually say naked. And then when they came out the other side, they would be wrapped in a new white robe. This, is, this symbolized taking off the old self and its sinful practices and putting on new life in Christ. This was not without biblical precedent. Throughout the New Testament, we see this idea of, of the old being gone and, and putting on the new. I want you to keep that in mind. That's what I'm going to encourage you to do today. Keep taking off the old and keep putting on the new. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Ephesians 4 says it this way, in reference to your former way of life, you, you laid aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and you, you renewed in the spirit of your mind, and you Put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, etc. The, the picture was that of, of taking off your old filthy garments, taking them off, and, and putting on Christ. In fact, Galatians 3 says it this way. For, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Do you, do you see, can you, can you see that white robe of Christ's righteousness that, that surrounds you? Colossians 3 says, do not lie to one another since you have laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self uh, which, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. That's a lot of verses. Throughout the New Testament, we are encouraged to keep on taking off the old self like a dirty shirt and, and put on the new self cleanly robed in the righteousness of Christ. My brothers and sisters, we are to be new. We're to be different people than who we were. This Imagery was intentionally duplicated in the early church in the waters of baptism. 
And so the new year is upon us. And I can think of no better message than to remind us, let's put off the old. The the, the failures and even sins of this past year, and let's covenant together, let's commit together together to put on the new. And I'm not even necessarily talking about resolutions. I'm talking about putting on more and more of Christ. As I was thinking about this particular Sunday, I was thinking about maybe I'll do a kind of a New Year's sermon. And and then I began studying this text through the month as we were doing the Advent series, which should concern you. I've had a month to study this, which means we're going to be here a while. As I was saying, I thought, this is a perfect text. This is the picture that Peter draws for us as we return to our study of the book of 1 Peter. Keep putting off the old self and keep growing up into your new salvation. You may look at this past year, 2019, and you may be appropriately discouraged. There may have been far too many sins and, and far too many failures. And I want to say to you, put them off and put on the new. It's time. The new year presents an opportunity for us to resolve again to be fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. For our Advent series, we finished 1 Peter chapter 1, which actually, that chapter actually concludes with a bit of an unfortunate chapter division. You'll see what I mean in a moment. You'll remember that Peter spent the first half of the first chapter reminding his suffering, persecuted readers of all of the benefits that they enjoyed in Christ. They had been richly blessed by by God the Father to be born anew. And to receive a new inheritance, which is imperishable, undefiled, reserved in in heaven for you, so that they could greatly rejoice. I know it's maybe been a tough year, but so that you could greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, maybe you faced various trials. But all of that has proved to test your faith. Proving it genuine, resulting in praise and glory and honor at the return of of Jesus Christ. Because of all these blessings of this great salvation, Peter then moved to give us some commands. You remember that? Doctrine before duty, creed before conduct. Because of this, this is the way you ought to live. Starting in verse 13, therefore... And he gave us four commands through the end of the chapter. We looked at those. First, fix your hope on the grace to be yours at the second coming of of Jesus. We of all people should be the most hopeful. I'm reminded that the first Sunday of Advent is is a Sunday of hope, and and we talked about that. Yes, we may struggle, but we are hopeful, knowing that the best is yet to come. Second, be, be holy. Jesus is coming back. Be holy in all your behavior because, well, God's holy. Since the character of God, the Father, is holy, we too should be holy. Remember, like, like Father, like Son. And third, conduct yourselves in fear. I know lots of songs, especially contemporary songs, of like talk, telling you you don't need to be fearful of anything. That's not what Peter says. There should be a reverential fear because of all that God has done for us. After all, we have been redeemed, not with perishable things like gold or silver. We've been redeemed by the very precious blood of Christ. He bought you at a very high price. 
Therefore, we should live in fearful respect for God, leading to a fearful, holy conduct. Maybe, just suggesting, maybe if this year has been filled with too many failures and sins, it may be that you forget who your father is. Fourth, we should love one another fervently from the heart. That's the last thing that we looked at in our study of First Peter. I remember I suggested that these commands go from upward to inward to, to outward. We look up, awaiting the return of Christ and seeing our holy father. And as a result, we, we look inward and we seek to be holy, conducting ourselves in reverential fear. And then we look outward toward one another, loving one another deeply. Now, he is talking about us, okay? I just want to be clear about that. He's talking about us. He's later in chapter two is gonna talk about uh, our relationship with, uh, uh, with unbelievers outside. But right now, I want you to hear he's talking to us. Love each other deeply. After all, we've been born anew. Verse 3, where God caused us to be born again. We, we have been born again by the living. He ends that chapter. We've been born again by the living and enduring word of God. That is by the word that was preached to you in the gospel. Therefore, chapter 2, verse 1, there's that unfortunate chapter division. We're still talking. Listen, we're still talking this morning about being new people, born again, which results, since we're born into one family, it results in us loving one another Deeply, This brings us to Peter's, actually, his fifth command in our text this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 says, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. What a... What a perfect New Year's sermon. The new command, long for. My brothers and sisters, crave the pure milk of the word so that you may grow in respect to your salvation. We remember that Peter largely talks about salvation with a future look, the fullness of the future salvation. Continue to grow as we long for the return of Christ. That's, that's the command, by the way, the main verb of the sentence. But like the other commands, this one is supported by a participle there in verse one that actually connects it to the previous con command, context of loving one another deeply. You'll see what I mean in just a moment. Let me give you the outline as we make our way through the text. Very simply, we are to put off the old self and nourish or feed the new self. After all, we've tasted the kindness of the Lord. Peter has just told us to love one another fervently from the heart. We talked about that. We as Christians are family. We've been born again, again, not by perishable seed, but by the living and enduring word of God. Our conduct should then be different, especially toward one another. Again, we're going to talk about unbelievers later. But right now, toward one another, our conduct should be different. People should be able to tell that we are Christians by our love for one another. Listen, we have a community that 
cannot be rivaled out there. And some of you sit there and immediately think, well, I don't know, in my sports team or my workplace or, 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 or my club or whatever. If that is true, and it may be true, that means that we have some work to do here, doesn't it? Because what we have cannot be rivaled out there. We should love one another deeply. Now I ask you, are you lonely, alone, feel neglected in this culture in which we find that in, in the world of social media that many of you have thousands of friends, but you're lonely? That's what the studies tell us. Feel isolated, uncared for. I want to say to you that you can find community here. You can be cared for here. Not, not perfectly. We, we will make mistakes along the way. We, we want to be a loving community. And so, first, we should, we should put off like a dirty, soiled, nasty garment. And Peter gives us a list there in verse 1. Why does he pick these particular Sins, because notice that they are anything that is inconsistent with a deep love for one another. Anything that we do that destroys relationship. Tom Schreiner says it this way, the sins listed tear at the social fabric of the church, ripping away the threads of love that keep them together. as the participle of verse 1 that supports the main verb and command of verse 2. Putting aside anything that destroys community, that destroys family relationships, anything that is not consistent with a deep love for one another. Look at that list. That destroys our love for each other. Even in a biological family, biological relationships, these sinful actions could slip in and separate families, right? Some of you know that too well. You've experienced it. You've just come through a Christmas holiday and there, were, there was someone that wasn't there that should have been. Christmas holiday that should have been joy-filled, spent with family as you love one another, but actions in the past have splintered and, and broken the family. These should not be part of the church family. Maybe you've experienced that in previous churches. And if you have, I'm sorry. Maybe you've experienced that here. I'm doubly sorry. We've been born anew. We're supposed to be different. We're supposed to be family. What is the list of things Peter gives that destroys community? Well, first he says we put aside all malice. The word speaks of evil generally, and to it Peter adds the word all. Wickedness or, or evil of any kind should not be part of the Christian life, but in this context, it's talking about any evil that destroys the Christian community and relationships. Anything that, that will mess with my relationship with you, get rid of all of it. It is malice or ill will towards others that destroys the benefits of community. It's kind of an umbrella word under which the rest fall. 
but, but, but we could add beyond this list anything that we might do that harms each other. Not the way that we're supposed to be. We're supposed to act in loving ways, sacrificing for one another, serving one another, caring for one another. Any sinful act that hurts others, especially in this family, I'm throwing down the gauntlet. It needs to go. No, I don't have anything specific in mind, okay? If you're wondering if it's you. Well, it might be you, but it needs to go. To this list, it would be long if we included everything like greed and jealousy and pride and gossip and backbiting and covetousness and lying and stealing, on and on. Most sin, you understand, is committed against another. He tells us, don't do that. This is your family. Rather than sinning against each other, love one another deeply from the heart. Because those sins in love cannot coexist. To this, Peter adds some specifics. We don't know if he had certain things in mind that perhaps he'd heard were happening among his readers in Asia Minor. Likely these are sins most common in destroying family relationships, putting aside all malice or evil, which includes all deceit. He uses the word all three times in this one verse to make sure that we understand the comprehensive nature of everything that needs to go. All deceit, any and every kind of cunning, treachery or deceit is the idea. Any falsehood with one another, lying, deceiving, mistruths. We are children of God. We are to be people of truth. There should be no lying or deceit with one another, especially for our own supposed gain. We should be people of truth for the good of those around us. We don't withhold anything. Even if there's something very hard or difficult that needs to be said, we speak the truth in love because we love each other and we have each other's best in mind. Interesting to note, the word deceit is used again at the end of this chapter there. Peter is encouraging us to follow in the steps of Jesus. He is our example of how we should live a life of love. Verse 22 says, of Jesus, he committed no sin, nor was any deceit, there's the word, found in his mouth. In other words, I want you to catch that, that Jesus was a man of consummate integrity. You could trust what he said. If Jesus said it, it was true. Can that be said of you? Takes no imagination to wonder what lying and deceit does to true community and how it destroys it. Put it aside. Put aside hypocrisy next. Most of you are familiar with that word. It's the word hypocritos in the Greek and speaks of one who wears a mask. Actors in the Greek plays, for example, were hypocritos, uh, ones who wore the mask. You, you remember seeing the masks for Greek tragedies or Greek comedies. If an actor was to be sad because of some tragedy, he wore the appropriate mask. It didn't, he wasn't really sad, but he wore a mask to make it look that way, you see. And if he was to be happy because of the comedy, he wore the appropriate mask. The point is this, it was all fake. 
It wasn't who the actor truly was. He was playing a part, wearing a mask. The word came to speak of those who were hypocrites, who wore masks. They were fakes, putting on a show for everyone to see. It's not really who they were, you see. Remember, Jesus used the word for the Pharisees. They looked really good on the outside, full of... They were dead on the inside, like whitewashed tombs, shiny and clean, pretty on the outside, full of dead men's bones on the, on the inside. As followers of Jesus, listen carefully, we do not wear masks. We are true with one another, transparent, even if that means with our failures and our sins. Because we want to take them off, don't we? We are pursuing holiness, confessing sin, and seeking righteousness together. We do not put on a mask when we enter this room and take it off when we leave. We aren't one person on Sundays and other people during the week. If we were to ask your children who you are at home, would they say, well, just like he is, just like she is here at church? We're to be people of integrity. To be a person of integrity is to be whole. It speaks of being undivided. Who you are here is who you are at home. Who you are here is who you are on the job with your coworkers. They know that you're a follower of Jesus because of the way that you live. Or do you just put on a mask when you're with them? So which one's the real you? We are to be faithful people of integrity. We also next put aside envy. What is it to be envious? Very simply, it is to be self-focused. And therefore, envious or jealous of others' successes and joys. It is actually the opposite of love, for instead of wanting the best for others, envy wants their downfall and prefers self-advancement and its self-focus rather than the joys of others. It is to want what they have and further to not want them to have it. He says, don't be that way. What, rather, we are to rejoice with those who rejoice. We're to weep with those who weep. We celebrate growth in one another. We celebrate spiritual successes because we are family, you see. We rejoice and celebrate with those who do well and we weep, genuinely weep with those who do not because we want the best for other family members. In fact, we would sacrifice for the good of others. We find no joy or personal satisfaction in the failures of others. It hurts us because it hurts them. Last, we are putting away all slander. Slander speaks of every kind of evil speech. Mm. Gossip, backbiting, Malicious talk, slander. We, we don't speak evil of others in the family. We speak to and of their good for their encouragement. Again, even if what we have to say is hard or difficult, critical, it brings us no personal joy, we do it for your good. Now listen to me very carefully. Christians are really good at disguising slander under the facade of prayer. I share this with you so that you can pray for this person. All the while relishing 
in their failing. As people of God's family, we pursue holiness together, holding one another accountable, desiring the best for one another, grieving rather than slandering. Listen, if you're going to share a prayer request about someone, make sure that you have talked to the person and God about it before you share it with someone else. Brings us quickly to our second point. Continually, continually putting off the old self, the command of the text is to long, I love this, to long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to your salvation, your future salvation that's coming. Grow up in it. Like newborn babies crave spiritual milk. And now in other New Testament passages, uh, Paul and the author of Hebrews, for example, uh, milk is used of spiritual immaturity. That is not the way Peter uses it here. He says, like a new baby craves its mother's milk, so also should we as born again ones crave spiritual milk. Anyone who has been around, has had or been around a newborn knows how much they crave milk, like every two or three hours. Now, I know for some of us, it's been many, many years, unless, of course, you're a new grandfather. You knew I'd work that in. I was actually thinking about that. Newborns crave spiritual milk, and then as they grow, the hours between feedings grow, and before you know it, they no longer crave milk. Again, we could talk about growing to maturity, but that's not what Peter is saying here. He's not saying trade in the milk for the meat. That's not the point here. He is saying we should continue throughout our lives to crave spiritual milk. Do not Do not ever grow to the point you think that you do not need it anymore. Continue to strongly desire spiritual milk so that you can grow in respect to your salvation. After all, it is a lifelong process. And I would say further, without it, you will not grow. You will be emaciated and maybe even die. In respect to salvation, it's an interesting way to say it. When we are saved, we are born anew. New creations in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. But it takes a lifelong pursuit to grow in holiness and Christ-likeness. We will reach that. We will reach full maturity when we die or when Jesus comes back. Not any other time or any other way. Until then, we continue to grow. We've all known people, have we not, who have prayed a prayer, asked Jesus to be Savior, perhaps even Lord, but have grown very little sense. They're like little toddlers running around, even though they've been Christians for 20 years. Do not be that way. Take the steps necessary, empowered by the Spirit, to grow. Your your life is not going to be perfect. We're still going to struggle with sin, but we should be different people than we were last year. This year is about done. You should be different next year than you were this year. Do you understand that? And the year before that. If there is no growth, you need to ask yourself the question, why? Lots of discussion about this pure milk of the word. To what is that referring A more literal translation would be pure spiritual milk. I believe that's how the ESV has it. The word pure is unadulterated. It is pure. It is genuine. 
My brothers and sisters long for the pure milk of the word is how my translation has it, but of the word isn't technically in the Greek. The, the translation, it's the translation of the word logikos, and it's, it is notoriously challenging um, to, to translate. The word is the word from which we get our word logical, which can mean reasonable or rational. Perhaps you've heard it that way. It only appears in one other place in the New Testament, Romans chapter 12. I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies to a living and holy sacrifice acceptable, acceptable to God, which is your what? Spiritual. Perhaps you've heard it that way, reasonable service of worship. Again, you probably heard different translations because it's challenging. But most agree, all that to say this, most agree that it speaks of that which is spiritual, that which is of God. If you want to grow spiritually, you must feed on those things that are spiritual. It's not that difficult. Peter says, crave pure spiritual milk. What is that from the context, the end of chapter 1? He's just spoken about the living and enduring word of God, that which was preached to you in the gospel. So most agree, pure spiritual milk at least includes, listen to me, at least it includes the word of God, the word of the gospel. It may include other spiritual disciplines. If you want to include them, fine, other practices. But we can all least, at least agree it includes the word of God, the word of the gospel. I've said it this way many times before. We need the gospel not only on the day that it saved us, but we need it every day since. As Jerry Bridges said um, in his book, The Discipline of Grace, preach the gospel to yourself every day. You need it every day. You, you never not need that spiritual milk. And certainly that gospel is most clearly proclaimed in the word of God. Hence my translation as newly born people crave the pure milk of the word of God. I'm about done. What a perfect message for the new year. You see, every year as we approach the new year, many of us make commitments, perhaps you call them resolutions, to be more fit, eat better, exercise, whatever. M many of us, myself included, make a commitment to be more and more a, a person of the Word of God, which is great. I want to add my voice to that commitment after all, we are, as followers of Jesus, want to fix our hope on the return of Christ. We want to be holy as God is holy. We want to conduct ourselves in holy fear, and we want to love each other deeply. But listen, you cannot do those things apart from the pure milk of the Word of God. We must be more and more people of the Word and long for, for, for perhaps other spiritual disciplines that will help us to grow in our salvation. Can I encourage you today Let's make 2020 a better year than it was last year and the year before. And the only way that we can do that, the only way in this church that we can love one another deeply and live in committed community is together to be people of the word. Listen, you don't ever get to the point where you say, I don't need it anymore. I, I, I've learned everything there is to learn. This reminds me of an illustration that I shared many, many years ago. 
a, a pastor of a, a rural church noticed that one of his uh, uh, members was, was missing, had been missing for several weeks, an old farmer. And so he went to see the old farmer, and it was a cold, wintry day, a fire going in the fireplace. And he said, I, I, I have, farmer, I haven't seen you for a little while. And he said, oh, pastor. He said, I grew up in church. I've heard it all. I, I, I actually know it all. To, to which the, the pastor then didn't say a word, stood up, walked over to the blazing fire, took the tongs and, and took a hot burning coal out of the fire and placed it on the hearth and then watched. And within a matter of minutes, it was cold and dark. And he looked at the farmer and the farmer said, I'll see you on Sunday. You never get to the point where you no longer need the word of God. We need it together. Charles Spurgeon um, uh, once said, you cannot expect to grow in grace if you do not read the scriptures. I agree. As we make a a new commitment to be uh, in the word this year, can I encourage, I know that we make them. Can I encourage you to do it? You can do what I've done over the last few days. I got a head start. January 1st is until Wednesday. You can get a head start. Lots of great reading programs to include those Bible apps we talked about last week, Version and Bible Gateway. Pick one and stick with it. Read it, consume it, study it, digest it, and allow it to grow you up in your salvation. After all, We have tasted of the kindness of the Lord and we have found him to be good, have we not? That's a quote from from Psalm chapter 34. And in Psalm chapter 34, verse eight, the psalmist actually says, taste and see that the Lord is good. But now it's not a command. It says, haven't we? Haven't we tasted the kindness of the Lord and seen that he is good? Oh, we have. So continue to taste. It's worth it.